0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. The new year brought a landmark moment for the use of psychedelics in mental health treatment. Citizens of Oregon are now allowed to use psilocybin in supervised settings, a first in the United States. This adds momentum to a larger trend of acceptance in the clinical use of psychedelics that's been developing over the past several years in the U.S. But our guest today is not a newcomer to this issue. In fact, he's been leading an effort for the past 36 years to gain FDA approval for psychedelics as prescription medicines and also for developing personal growth, spirituality, and creativity. Dr. Rick Doblin is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, which he has grown from a one-man project to an international pharmaceutical company with over 50 full-time staff. MAPS is designing or sponsoring psychedelic psychotherapy drug development research in more than a dozen countries and has raised over $70 million in donations. In 2017, MAPS received FDA breakthrough therapy designation for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, Full approval for that use case is expected within next year, and last year, they shared very promising results of their first phase three clinical trial, which we'll get into. We're actually speaking uh, the day they've released the press release on their second phase three clinical trial, so we're really excited to get into that. So, Dr. Doblin, welcome to Raise the Line, and thanks for taking the time to be with us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Shiv. It's, it's a pleasure. I'll, I'll just add that we've actually raised um, about $140 million in grants and donations since uh, I founded MAPS in 1986. And we now have almost 200 staff, almost 40 in MAPS, the nonprofit, and then about 160 or so in the MAPS Public Benefit Corp., which is wholly owned by the nonprofit, which is our pharmaceutical arm. Thanks for those clarifications, and, and clearly you guys are, are growing like
0: wildfire because at, just as the interest in psychedelics yeah. has grown, grown by wildfire. So, you know, before we dive into the clinical trials, which I know our audience would love to hear about, let's let's learn more about you and your origin story. <laughs> what what got you interested in psychedelics in the first place?
1: Uh, well, I would say that it was my bar mitzvah that failed to turn me into a man. <laughs> so, what, what I mean by that is that the uh, traditional rites of passage that our culture often offers in different ways, don't often have the power that they used to. So I felt that I was really um, left wanting more. Uh, and when I first started taking psychedelics, um, when I was 17, they really brought me to confront who I was, what was my place in the world? you know, How do I deal with my emotions? And I felt like Psychedelics were the bar mitzvah that I should have had. <laughs> um, so that's one part. The other part is that I was raised by a very politically progressive parents. and they helped me to understand that I was just a link in a chain, and that the chain going back several generations had been immigrants in uh, my uh, on my mother's side from uh, 1880 from Russia, escaping anti-Semitism in uh, Russia. And then uh, my grandfather on my dad's side came over in 1920 from Poland, also escaping. So they were immigrants, uh, basically coming with nothing. And then the American dream and the opportunities here. And so I was sort of trained that and given the freedom to look at deeper threats than um, finding enough money for uh, food and shelter. And so I was told early on about stories of the Holocaust that just horrified me. And I felt like, how can people be so willing to dehumanize and murder others? That that was like a flaw in the human psyche, you know, that, that we could do that to each other. Uh, then I was a young boy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I thought, OK, now the whole world could blow up. Um, you know, kids these days have active shooter drills, but this was like drills in case, you know, the nuclear bombs fall. Um, And then finally, I was um, in one of the last years of the lottery for Vietnam. And so now it was my own country doing terrible things. So I kind of felt like, what is my response to all of this? And when I first tried psychedelics, I had this idea that this sense of going beyond ego, of connecting to feeling part of everything, feeling part of something bigger, that if everybody felt that, then it would be uh, more difficult to dehumanize others, that it would be the antidote to fundamentalism, to genocide, to environmental destruction, this kind of um, sort of unitive mystical experience that the class of psychedelic can give you. And also I learned about their incredible therapeutic potential to help us see through our traumas, work through depression. So basically when I was um, 18 years old and I uh, went to the guidance counselor in my first year of college and said my psychedelic experiences are becoming a lot more important to me than my classes. <laughs> and would you help me deal with them? Because I'm having a hard time. I'm not good with my emotions. I'm scared. I'm um, not able to process to really let go. Um, my guidance counselor gave me a book to read, which was um, Realms of the Human Unconscious Observations from LSD Research by Dr. Stanislav Grof. Mm, yeah. And it was that book, reading it, that really decided yes i will focus my life on psychedelics so that that's kind of my origin story
0: that's amazing and uh we've we were we had the pleasure of one of the previous Raiseline guests we had was jim fadiman uh who i'm oh, sure you well great. know uh, is kind of dubbed the father of microdosing and and hearing his origin story and actually his books on the psychedelic explorer's guide and symphony of selves first got me personally interested in in the field Um, But, you know, how do you go from being that 18 year old getting interested in maybe psychedelics and what can do for you as a human in terms of human flourishing to then I know you went to Harvard Kennedy School and received your doctorate in public policy. And there you actually wrote, I think, your dissertation on how psychedelics could get FDA approval, which it seems like you've turned into reality in an incredible way. Uh, So can you give us maybe a little context about how you went about adding the academic bent to it and, and legitimizing it?
1: Yeah, so I dropped out of college when I was eighteen. This was not too long after uh, Timothy Leary is, you know, uh, turned on, tuned in, drop out, Um, and I, I did feel that I was overdeveloped intellectually and underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually. And I felt that the world was like that too, that we have all these technologies, but but as humans, we're still very primitive and we don't have the emotional and spiritual capacity to deal with the technologies that we have. And hence we're destroying the world and and wiping out environment and species and things like that. So when I decided to focus on psychedelics and dropped out of college, it was because uh, there was no way this was right after the backlash against psychedelics, you know, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. And so I, I wasn't mature enough, really. I had to do my own healing and that took me 10 years Basically, to uh, but I always knew I would go back to school to study to become a psychedelic therapist. So it, it took me 10 years of basically getting grounded, building houses, being in the physical world, um, you know trying to put ideas in my head out into the world and seeing the flaws of my thinking. And so 10 years after I dropped out, uh, in 1982, I went back to school, so started as a 28 year old freshman in college. And my first semester, I went out to Esalen in Big Sur, California, to uh, study with Stan and Christina Groff, who I had I'd done a workshop with Stan um, in 1972. But this is now, so 10 years, I'm sort of on my own. Then I go back to start my school. And during this workshop is when this woman, Debbie Harlow, came by, uh, Esalen, and she wasn't in the workshop, but she said there was this new drug called uh, Adam. And it was terrific, and it, it turned out that this was MDMA. So she, um, you know, she told me about it, and I um, initially was not that enthused. She said it helps you feel love, it helps you feel connection, it helps you be a better listener, opens your heart. I figured, hey, I already am in love, and I'm a good listener, and blah, blah blah. And then I saw a group of people sitting in a circle doing MDMA, and I was like, hey, they're talking to each other. You know, how profound can this be? You take a bunch of LSD at that time you know, a dose of LSD when I was in college was, you know, 250 micrograms, you know, now it's more like 60 or 70 micrograms. So this idea of going beyond ability to talk, you know, dissolving your ego, that's what I thought the action was. And so when I saw people talking under MDMA, I was like, can't be that profound. But I like to say that I was uh, stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. (laughs) And then when I took it home and did it with my girlfriend, I was just shocked how profound it was, how incredible. And so I did go through this uh, process of um, getting an undergraduate degree in uh, humanistic, uh, transpersonal psychology and psychedelic research. I graduated in 87 and I wanted to get into a clinical psych PhD program to learn how to do uh, psychotherapy outcome research. But nobody would let me in when I wanted to tell them I wanted to study MDMA. It had just been criminalized in 85. Psychedelic research had been wiped out by the uh, FDA for almost two decades at that point. And so I didn't know what to do. And so I went home and I decided I would smoke some pot and think about it. And so during this period of, of high, and I might've got this idea some other time, I realized that I wanted too much too soon that I wanted to do the research, but the politics were in the way. And I said, okay, then I just have to study the politics. So that's how I switched from becoming trained to be a therapist. And that's where I applied to the Kennedy School. Uh, There was a fellow, Mark Kleiman, who um, I had not met. I didn't even know about the Kennedy School, but he was uh, interviewed. He's a drug policy expert. And he, he mentioned a lawsuit that I had been involved with against the DEA with a nonprofit before MAPS, starting in 84. And so I asked him if he would be my mentor. And he said, yeah, if you can get in, I'd be your mentor. So I managed to get into the Kennedy School. And then, just as a very quick thing, I'll say that when I grant, I wanted to see how legit I could be. You know, here I am at Harvard, the Kennedy School. And you know, so um, there's a program for people that want careers in the federal government that was called um the Presidential Management uh, Internship. Now it's Presidential Management Fellowship. Highly competitive, and I I managed to get it, and I wanted a job at the FDA. So my application landed at the FDA just at the time that the group at FDA that regulated psychedelics was switching from the group that had blocked it for 20 years to a new group that was going to open it up. And I almost got a job. I went through all this vetting, and at the last minute, um, the DEA said that they would refuse to work with me Because I previously sued them. So I was willing to wear a suit tie and give up drugs to go work inside the FDA. So the DEA helped me not give up drugs. So I have to thank the DEA for that. And that's when I realized I need more uh, credibility. And that's where I decided that I would go then on for the Ph.D.
0: Well, we, are, we are, many people have a lot to thank that the DEA intervened at that point, um, <laughs> I think, because yeah. of the work you've done since. And so we, we've talked a bit about MAPS. Can we talk about kind of what are some of the milestones MAPS has achieved, including um, I'll let you talk about this last phase three uh, and then the, now the new phase three studies, because I think that's really exciting for our audience to learn about.
1: Okay. So um, super fast. I'll start in 86 when I started MAPS we had five protocols all rejected by the FDA. And the first milestone was 1992, when the FDA reviewed our uh, protocol to study the therapeutic use of MDMA. And they decided that they needed to have a special uh, advisory committee meeting to decide whether they would open the door to psychedelic research. And they decided that they would do that and that they would regulate psychedelics the way they regulate any other drug, which meant that we couldn't start with therapy. We had to start with a phase one dose response safety study. So that was with Dr. Charles Grobe at Harbor UCLA. That was 1992 that took through the nineties. Then in, um, 2000, we started the first study with PTSD and that was in Spain. And the, the heartbreaking part of that is we had just started the study and then, uh, we got some good publicity and the Madrid Anti-Drug Authority got upset and shut the study down. And we weren't powerful enough to um, open the study up again. So then it wasn't until around 2003, 2004, that we were able to start MDMA research in the US. And that took us till um, November 29th, 2016, where we had what's called the end of phase two meeting with FDA. We'd done six phase two studies in the US, Israel, Canada, and Switzerland purpose of phase two is to figure out how to design phase three, which are the uh, large-scale placebo-controlled randomized studies to prove safety and efficacy. Um, And so we uh, negotiated those designs in 2017. and 2018, we started the first phase three study. And in uh, May 10th, 2020, we published the results in Nature Medicine, and the results were outstanding. And then we started the second phase three study, and we just sent out the press release this morning uh, that the second phase three study was successful. Similarly, um, similar results to the first phase three study. So the first one is called pivotal, The second is called confirmatory. And now we're anticipating submitting the application to the FDA for what's called a new drug application by July or so of 2023. And then we hope to have approval by uh, May or something of 2024. So that's the overview, but the results are incredible. So I'll just say very quickly that we felt that we had to work with the people that had the most um, extreme PTSD because of the stigma of psychedelics. We had to work with people that had PTSD for a long time, chronic PTSD and severe PTSD in our first study. And what we showed is that at the two-month follow-up, the people who got therapy without MDMA, at that point, um, 32% no longer had PTSD, a diagnosis of PTSD. So the therapy was really pretty good by itself. But 67% who got therapy plus MDMA no longer had PTSD diagnosis. And another 21% had what is called clinically significant reductions of PTSD. So we had 88% response rate, which is... Great. And these people had PTSD An average of over 14 years. And one third had PTSD for over 20 years. One of the things we learned in phase two is that our therapy works regardless of the cause of PTSD. The drugs that are approved by FDA for PTSD, Zoloft and Paxil, work better in women than in men and failed in combat-related PTSD. But we showed that it worked equally in men and women, complex PTSD from childhood, uh, war-related PTSD as well. And so the second phase three study, we decided that we would work with moderate to severe to just broaden it out so that it wouldn't be just for uh, the people with the most difficult PTSD, even moderate is very debilitating still. And so the results were tremendous uh, as well. So I think the the message that I'd like people to hear is that while it's still going to take us time to get this out as a prescription drug, if we are uh, fortunate enough to get FDA approval, is that people should have hope. Don't give up. I mean, you know, there's a large number of people that commit suicide from PTSD or from depression or you know, we had over 100,000 people in America die from uh, opiate related overdoses with fentanyl. So a lot of that is where people running away from trauma. A lot of alcoholism and drug abuse is people running away from trauma. So I guess I really want people to understand that there are healing potentials, healing technologies that we are working to become more available to mainstream them and have them covered by insurance so I know it's hard to, for people to think about holding on if they're in despair or something but um, you know there's the possibility of healing coming ahead
0: that's a that's a very important message and I hope I hope it gets across to our audience and then their patients by way of our audience because uh yeah it is it does seem imminent and the you know hopefully the FDA will use these results in the very positive light that they are. Um, I heard about these results. Uh, well, not the second trial, which just came out today, as as you said, but the first trial through two osmosis connections, I'll give a quick shout out to the first is uh, one of the chief of staffs at MAPS, Jim, uh, James Acer, yeah. who's actually the cousin of uh, one of our longtime uh, teammates, uh, Hillary Acer. Um, so he presented some of those uh, results when I talked to him. And the second is um, our board member Mitch who's very instrumental to osmosis' growth and the fact that now we reach millions of students and, and professionals all around the world his wife is one of I know your collaborators and good friends dr. Rachel Yehuda of oh, the yes. VA. yeah so it, uh, we we definitely are excited from a personal perspective and obviously for what it means for our providers and patients so what what advice would you give to our audience of health healthcare professional students? If they're interested in getting into this career and or in general, what career advice would you give them?
1: Well, the the most important thing I, I would say is that what we're talking about is really therapy. It's not psychedelics by themselves. It's therapy that the psychedelics make more effective. So we really want to work with trained therapists. And there's a lot of different opportunities for training. I think just you know learn how to be a good therapist, and then take some of these specialized trainings that we offer, that the other groups that are working with psilocybin will offer. And I think uh, a big part of it, uh, there's a Jungian archetype that I think many of your uh, people might be aware of, called the wounded healer, and it's about people that have had various wounds and have learned how to heal themselves. And those are the people that have the most compassion and capacity to heal others because they've done it themselves in certain ways. And so I think for people to uh, really think about going through um, their own therapy and there's another big issue, which is um, you wouldn't go to a meditation teacher that never meditated or a a yoga teacher that did do yoga. So I'd say for the people that are listening that the best training that uh, you could get is to have your own psychedelic experiences and see how hard they can be or how opening they can be or or what results from that or what the fears are. So we do have several protocols from the FDA approved where we can give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. And so I think that while right now, um, you know, there, there are certain places like Oregon, which has, you know, just opened up uh, a program for people to access psilocybin and similar program, but for more wide range of psychedelics was approved on the ballot in uh, Colorado, this recent election. So there's other places around the world where you could go for legal experiences. So I'd I'd encourage people to really do their own work, you know, and to um, really pay a lot of attention to your dreams. You know, Jung, as far as we know, uh, never did a psychedelic, but he had just incredible access to his unconscious through his dreams. And through other meditation, various things like that. So I think the the key thing is we are therapists are their own instrument, um, and so you need to refine your instrument and face your own fears and do your own work, and that will really build the strength for you to work and help with other people.
0: Absolutely. And and we have certainly a, a lot more wounded healers now than we did even three years ago, given all the stressors that people went through with the pandemic. And are you finding that in your in even the work you do at MAPS and these clinical trials that you're getting, you know, former nurses, doctors, therapists who've maybe experienced PTSD or been burned out uh, leaving the workforce? That's one of the things we're most excited about is how do you keep these healers in the workforce without, you know, having them burn out or, or commit suicide?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world right now with uh, climate change, species extinction, violence, authoritarianism, we're all exposed to enormous amounts of, of stress and fear and anxiety. And so there's no such thing as really a, quote, healthy normal. <laughs> you know, we all have our own issues and, and we're an unhealthy system. So one of the benefits, I would say, of COVID, one of the upsides, is people have realized how we're all connected. You know, viruses just spread globally incredible, and one of the other parts is that people have realized just how prevalent mental illness is so there's more of a appreciation for the need to treat anxiety depression you know fear phobias uh, so i i do think that you know they say it's darkest before the dawn <laughs> you know th- that there's a lot of challenges right now and at the same time that's creating opportunities and that's why i think we're able to bring back psychedelics in this psychedelic renaissance now because a large part of the veterans that we have bipartisan support and we've been able to do this without getting it wrapped up in the culture wars but the backlash 50 years ago was psychedelics used by hippies protesting vietnam and it was the classic counterculture versus the culture the culture wins and smashes the counterculture and wipes out psychedelic research now we're trying to bring it back for everybody um, regardless of their political persuasion. And I think we've pretty much succeeded making this a bipartisan issue working with psychedelics for mental health. And so I, I would just like to encourage people to think about this as a modality that we, um, the key issue for scaling is the number of therapists. There's 12 million PTSD patients in America. We're hoping to train 25,000 therapists in this decade. So, you know, to the, to the extent that, Um, people that are listening want to really become psychedelic therapists, I think it's uh, an enormous opportunity for a career.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We even saw over the last few years, just we had the chief medical officer at and headspace and all these uh, online mental health companies express the same need for more therapists. There's a huge lack dearth of them, let alone a dearth of people who are trained in psychedelic therapy. So, and I know maps offers this training and and you're trying to train 25,000 over the next decade You know, what other kind of scaling limitations are there to bring this to the 12 million PTSD patients and not to mention the ones with depression or alcohol use disorder?
1: Well, and all over the world. I mean, we are trying to do research. There's 350 million people with PTSD in in the world, at least. And that doesn't count all these refugees from Ukraine and all all what's going on uh, elsewhere. So that there's just an enormous amount of need for trauma. One of the things that Rachel Yehuda has done, which is... uh, you know, very instructive is looked at multi-generational trauma and epigenetics of PTSD. And so that's a major issue that that you could pass on sort of certain aspects of trauma, like your set points for anxiety, depression to the next generation. You know, this helps explain why conflicts can go on for, you know, thousand years between different groups, that that there's this multi-generational aspect. So I think what we're going to really hope for is that not only will we train therapists, but we're also very interested in drug policy reform. These drugs should be legal. They should be available to people um, in some sort of licensed legalization or other format. And so what we need to do is embed in the wider culture, this idea of how to handle psychedelic experiences and how to work with your own inner energies and so we, we talk about psychedelic harm reduction or training people for preparing for their own issues. We we have um, a psychedelic fundamentals course that people might want to go through on the MAPS website, which is a, a good educational uh, introduction to psychedelics. Our treatment manual, particularly for your audience, is uh, up on the MAPS website, and it describes our therapeutic approach. So if you just go to MAPS.org and you put in treatment manual, you'll see the 60-page or whatever document that describes how our therapists uh, deliver the therapy. And there's many other ways to do that, too. And so actually, we're now working with researchers inside the VA to blend MDMA with prolonged exposure, cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral joint therapy. Um, We're hoping to start studies with uh, EMDR and MDMA. So that MDMA is a tool that can help many different therapeutic modalities and so I think for, you know, students or people wanting to to learn this, just any way that you can learn, then that you can bring into what you learned about psychedelics. And then the other big category that we're just at the beginning of is going to be studying group therapy. Hmm. So we, we haven't started that yet, but we'll start at the Portland, Oregon VA in a couple months. That's awesome. Well, we're really
0: excited to, to follow the journey. We'll link out to those resources in our show notes and encourage our audience to go check it out as well. Uh, because it's definitely an interesting space that I think has captured the public's imagination in large part because of the great research you and you and your team have been doing. Um, I'm respectful of your time. So my last question for you, is there anything else that you want to get across to our audience about you about maps about psychedelics in, in general?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does social change really happen? So let's look at the gay rights, gay marriage. It's people that came out. So we need a massive psychedelic coming out. So for those people that are listening that have had maybe even negative experiences with psychedelics, but I think it's important to share them with others, uh, both the positive and the negative. So to to sort of help normalize this. And we are having the world's largest conference on psychedelics ever. That's gonna be June 19th to the 23rd, 2023 in Denver. So we have the entire Denver Convention Center. We're hoping for up to 10,000 people. Um, psychedelicscience.org, you can go there and you'll get all the information about the conference. We want it to be also this kind of coming out into culture and everybody has a role to play. And if you um, learn what you can and then even try to find the people that are the most frightened of psychedelics and see if you can help them uh, balance what they know with uh, replacing uh, fear with
0: facts. Well, that's incredible. We'll definitely look for that conference and encourage our audience to attend too. And my background, just so you know, I did, started med school at Hopkins two years, then left to start osmosis and grew that to a couple of million users. And now I'm going back to Hopkins in large part oh, because I, I want to go work and do some elective research at the Center for Psychedelic Studies there as well with Roland Griffiths. I know Roland Griffiths has a stage four cancer yeah. now with his team, who I know you know well.
1: wow. Could you say, do you have any particular uh, thoughts about what you want to study? Or what you'd like to research?
0: I mean, so I love uh, obviously the psilocybin research for end of life care was very exciting to me. Just having people go through ego death and accepting death uh, more, and how they how that changes how they their anxiety around it. But but certainly um, substance use disorders and couples therapy are are t- kind of top of mind for what MDMA and MDMA plus other psychedelics could potentially do. Oh, that's great! Yeah, MDMA for couples therapy is fantastic. Yeah, for sure. So. Um, again, really thrilled to to have you on the podcast, Dr. Doblin, and appreciative of all the work you've been doing over the past several decades to get us to this point.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so proud that you're going back to studying
0: more about psychedelics. That's great. For sure. I'm sure I'll be in touch. And hopefully, again, osmosis can be a conduit to get, get this even more mainstream within the healthcare professional audience.
1: Yeah, I'll say that one of the things at the Psychedelic Science Conference is we're going to have a special dinner to honor Roland. Awesome. And we're hoping that he could be there. We don't know if he will be able to be there or not, he doesn't know, but um, we're going to have a tribute to Roland and and psychedelic science. Yeah. It'd be very
0: special. So again, he, you, Dr. Yehuda, and several others have made a huge mark in the field. So, yeah. Well, with that, uh, Dr. Dobbin, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And, um, and more importantly, the work that you've done over the past decades to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. Thank you, Jim. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.